Welcome to McLean's Culture Podcast, The Thrill, for the week of August 14th. On this week's show, straight out of straight out of Compton, we just caught the new film about legendary Los Angeles rap group NWA. What does it say about biopics and hip hop as a whole? And why does Emma have such a hard time knowing which celebrities are alive or dead? Then, the trouble with celebrity feminism. There's been a lot of talk over the problem of our stars cherry-picking feminist causes. Are modern-day celebrity feminists like Amy Schumer, Tina Fey, and Lena Dunham failing us? Finally, RIP to LOL. A new Facebook study shows that LOL is no longer the way we laugh on the internet. Is this news OMG or just NBD? I'm Adrian. I'm Emma. And I'm Julia. And this is The Thrill. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. They were the world's most dangerous band. NWA was a supergroup of five kids from Compton, California. Easy e Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, MC Ren, and DJ Yella. They urged people to F the police, brought an unbridled brand of toxic misogyny, and helped build gangster rap and West Coast hip-hop. They frightened white America and took the rest of it by storm. In short, it was a somewhat troubled legacy, and yet here they are now, portrayed in all the sepia of a major biopic released by Universal Studios. Here's a clip. Y'all just got a snapshot of how Americans really feel. We gave the people a voice. We gave the people truth. Yeah, but your songs, they glamorize the lifestyle of gangs, guns, drugs. Our art is a reflection of our reality. What you see when you go outside your door? I know what I see. And it ain't glamorous. You get AKs from Russia and cocaine from Colombia. It ain't none of us got a passport, so... (laughs) Might want to check the source. Yeah, next question. Will you be more careful about what you say, how you say it? No. Probably not, no. <laughs> Freedom of speech includes rap music, right? But we exercise in our First Amendment, as far as I'm concerned. And the government wrote that. Straight Outta Compton is out now. It's a story of brotherhood, betrayal, and Beats by Dre? Emma, you, uh, it's interesting because you did not actually know a ton about NWA going into the film, which is odd because a lot of people who watch biopics sort of know how the movie's going to play out. So tell us, what, what did you know about NWA first? I knew their music or their most popular songs. Mm-hmm. So F the Police. Sure. And I enjoyed the movie, at least the beginning of, of the movie probably in part because I didn't know very much about them. And so what's interesting about this biopic is that Dr. Dre and Ice Cube, two of the most famous members of NWA, were actually heavily involved in the with the film, with the making of the film. Ice Cube's son, who looks exactly like yeah, him, crazy. plays Ice Cube. If you don't know a lot about NWA, which I didn't before I saw the movie, or while I was watching the movie, um, you would think that this is a an accurate retelling of their story. Only later did I find out that they omitted many things, and and I realized that because this story was told through the lens of of these two guys rather than the entire group, um, it was sort of more favorable to their stories, and they sort of came out as the the big heroes. When I learned that um, two of the members, DJ Yella and uh, MC, MC Ren, yeah. were actually way more involved. Um, then depicted, sure. Then depicted yeah. in the movie, but in the film, you don't really get a sense that they were a big part of the group at all. Um, and so, for example, in in the film, you see that, you know, there are certain scenarios that I'm sure in real life were played out much differently, like Dr. Dre, um, Dr. Dre's 
girlfriend and his his young daughter who's a toddler um in the film it's portrayed as though dr dre is working very hard at the studio album and his girlfriend is just unappreciative and is kind of like a shrew and is like I'm going to leave you because I don't care that you're working hard. You're never at home. And he's like, but baby, I'm working so hard. This is so unfair. When in reality, he probably wasn't there. Or, you know, I'm sure that his girlfriend would not see it that way. Right. There's no question that the narrative, I mean, any biopic, this is true of, I think, any music biopic is that it smooths over the warts. It's an exercise in wart removal, basically. Uh, And that was especially true. I mean, Dr. Dre uh, rather infamously assaulted uh, a a Fox journalist uh, for a a, a Fox hip hop show uh, back in the 90s. And that was not depicted. Uh, If anything, if you watch the film in a lot of ways, you can read it as, you know, the hero's journey of Dr. Dre. The last scene is of him triumphant walking out. Uh, It's making it seem like the whole thing is kind of a buildup to just him finding Eminem. Uh, And, you know, there is there are a lot of those aspects of hero worship. Certainly the fact that Ice Cube and Dr. Ray, the movie couldn't have happened without the two of them, Uh, though it is worth noting that Eazy-E's widow, Tamika, also had a huge hand to play in this, too. This really couldn't come together without her. Um, But what's interesting about this movie still uh, is that. Uh, I, I liked it more than I thought I would. And this is because I mostly don't care for music biopics. I find them to be pretty boring. As I say, the narrative is always so smooth and it's always so redemptive. And in this case, it was also, that's that's also true. There was, you know, you got the feeling of like, oh, these guys are rising from the bottom and then now they're famous. And, you know, it was there were some obstacles in the way, but, you know, ultimately they, they prevailed. Um, classic American story. A classic American story. Of course, it wasn't a classic American story. And, uh, but what I did like about it still was the fact that um, you were seeing hip hop in a way that you don't. People are starting to acknowledge they're seeing. Uh, we're in that sweet spot now for nostalgia, where uh, you know we talked about it in a past episode, where uh, the thirty-year rule, like things start becoming amazing and nostalgic thirty years down the road. And straight out of Compton, the seminal NWA album uh, that came out twenty-seven years ago. So that's like that's right in there. And you would never think to you would never think that a, uh, a band like NWA, which was assailed in so many different ways, you never think that like an album assailed as it was by uh, like Straight Outta Compton uh, would become a huge mass market film. And I do think that there is something to that. The fact that um, now that you're seeing you know hip hop nostalgia in in Dope, uh, the movie that just came out to critical reviews, and you're seeing uh, next year there's a Netflix TV series by Baz Luhrmann uh, that's about like hip hop's early history. I think it's interesting that we're seeing early parts of hip hop and seeing that the centralization of hip hop is true, that pop music is hip hop music. Even this, in this electronic music, like K Tronada is probably one of the most popular DJs right now right. in house music. And most of his popular songs are remixes of 90s R&B and hip hop songs, right. like remixes of Janet Jackson songs. Right. But also even with the EDM, too. I mean, the the fact that we're seeing an EDM movie like We Are Your Friends, whether or not that's going to be a particularly good movie, the movie that's starring uh, Zac, Zac Efron, Efron. Uh, whether or not that's going to be good, it's interesting to see, you know, the cre- like creation stories of genres we were so, we're so used to thinking of as new and young and energetic being depicted in ways thing like yeah, in the that, same way as like a Johnny a Johnny Cash film. That walk, to me was the, the most fascinating part of of Straight Outta Compton was when you got to see Dr. Dre um you know spinning on turntables and you you got a sense that and he worked at this kind of cheesy um club that was the decor was sort of like a hangover from the 70s it was very disco-y and he had this really corny boss who was wearing those whatever those like the platform shoes that men would wear in the 70s right. and 80s and he had like his this horrible gelled back hair and was wearing a shiny shirt and he kept telling Dre like this 
new rap music is horrible and just play slow jams, like just play music that the ladies want to hear. So to see the creation story of that genre was kind of great. Right. Well, history gets to be written by the victors, right? So right. it's probably too early for an EDM story. Like I realize that EDM is here to stay and that's that's fine. But not enough time has gone by for us to be able to be like, wow, that was what a moment when EDM came on the scene. But we are in a moment. We know like when rap began, remember, uh, you know, well, if you uh, on old newsreels and parents were like, it's the degradation of American teenagers, like all music that comes before it, that it's about to be really huge. And then it, it became the biggest music industry, a billion dollar global industry. Uh, so they're in a position to be like, see, we were right. right. So you can have a movie where Dr. Dre is spinning in a cheesy club and in your brain, you're like, we all know he makes it. Right. Mm, feels good. Uh, I mean, to be fair, I mean, EDM music, like rave music was was around in the 80s, right. too. Right. EDM and, and rave, though, I think are probably a little so, bit different. Like the rave culture, sure. for example, might right. be, it might be time for nostalgia so you're for that. talking about like bros in fluorescent tank tops. Correct. Right. So Adam. just like heterosexuals <laughs> listening to electronic music. I mean, well, I mean, the I, I think of, I mean, I am no expert, but I think that the rave scene especially like hit the peak in the late 90s. I'm talking about like the big furry pants, like that kind of yeah. scene is a little bit different than perhaps EDM. We should have Michael Cert- Barkley on yeah. back to, Certainly to discuss they, that part. There was but what I'm getting but, yes. at is enough time has gone by since the rave scene hit the peak to have seen the ripples that it had in pop culture. Julia, you talked about how history is written by the victors, and mm-hmm. that's always true with yeah. biopics because right. when you're making a major motion picture, there has to be a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it's always tied up and neat and wrapped up. Uh, and then it ends well, it and you know it's well. going to, right? right. And like, so now we live in a world where rap is it. Right, and this is what's interesting to me, and, and Emma also brought up the, the boss. This is actually a real person who is an early pioneer, actually, of West Coast uh, hip-hop. And I think this movie does him a disservice, and a lot of biopics always do. You know, you always see the guy who's like, there's always that guy that's like, oh, this will never do. Like, hmm, thank me in course. X years. That's in every music biopic. And it's the stuffy that old generation it wagging his finger so at the so brand in reality, new generation. In, in reality, he was, you know, he he certainly wasn't making the kind of West Coast music that NWA popularized, the gangster rap. Uh, that happened, but mm-hmm. he was, you know, that was the kind of instrumental, stuff. exactly, and and certainly right. uh, G funk, which Dr. Dre espoused the idea of like funk music infused with all these hard hard sounds, uh, meow, rap. Meow, yeah, that's meow, right, meow, meow. all those all those synths and horns. That comes from uh, from a time of in the early '80s. People like him helped with that. It really helped Dr. Dre's career and uh, DJ Yellow when they were part of World Class Reggae Crew. Obviously, not enough time in a music biopic to talk about that, and I certainly can't blame them for doing that. But at the same time, it's interesting to think about how this movie. Uh, wanted to depict hip hop history, which is so complicated, so complex, and there are so many people involved in it. Uh, and yet, you still saw, uh, for almost for no reason necessarily, Snoop Dogg and Tupac. Although it is fun to see those, it's always fun in music biopics to see those. But the other thing too that was, I think, notable about this film and is part of why I think people are talking about it so much is the idea of police brutality. Certainly, NWA has a long legacy of. Certainly, you know, obviously, one of its biggest songs is "F the Police," mm-hmm. um, and right now we're in a, a situation it's with very current, with race and riots topical. and all those things. Black that, Lives Matter. That's right. Um, Emma, what did you think about that? Because for me, I actually felt like a lot of that message was sh- really shoehorned in. There's no questioning. I think that NWA had 
some political, uh, certainly some political thinking in, in behind their lyricism. But a lot of it, honestly, was was nihilistic rather than thoughtful. This is a this is a group that came out of public like public enemy came before it, and those are people that looked backwards and said, "This is why we should be angry." I think public or uh, NWA, their thing was, "Man, we're furious about this right now, and let's do something about this with our anger." Uh, did you feel like that felt hamfisted the 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 idea of police brutality at the time and and how it tried to relate to right now? I actually liked a lot of uh, the allusions to police brutality, um, and I think that for that many white people don't really understand how it works, like how random questioning works. Mm -hmm. And I thought it sort of illustrated that well. I mean, that I don't know that it's accurate. I don't know that that's exactly what they experienced or that they had such a probably. Uh, what they were getting at is that this this need for this uh, urgency of Black Lives Matter before it was called that has been it didn't stop in the 80s. If anything, it was just like kind of a little marginalized. People right. looked at the civil rights movement and were like, we did it. Martin Luther King, thanks a lot. And their point was like, absolutely not. Nothing. No, no there was no doing it. Right. And I think bringing it back to the fact that it's so topical right now is like is another way of making themselves the victors who get to write history right. as grandfathers of the civil rights movement as it existed in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, and certainly it's powerful to see, uh, you know, NWA grappling with the Rodney King, with the Rodney right. King situation, especially because that was the time and the place for that. And for me, as somebody who didn't know a lot about them, hearing their lyrics the first time around, I would have kind of the like stodgy old white person reaction where I think I really like the music. It sounds good. But some of these lyrics, wow, like very angry and I don't really understand this. Mm -hmm. um, but seeing the those depictions of police brutality suddenly made the lyrics seem like completely justified to me and right. made me feel kind of like this seems like an outlet for someone's rage that is totally warranted. And that's kind of the story of gangster rap as it existed at the beginning when it came on the the national stage of America. Most of America doesn't experience that. So they were like, why is everybody so mad? And I don't want my kids listening to this kind of music. And then part of this biopic right. is to describe like this was our, our lyrics were a literal depiction of what was happening. Right. It's yeah, which I people think didn't really want to learn that that part. I forget if it was Dr. Dre or Ice Cube who said that they described it as reality rap. Mm -hmm. It is interesting, though, that you think of rap lyrics profane la rap lyrics of as being so ubiquitous now but that lyrics weren't that profane at that time right. and that was i liked the part in the movie where um jerry heller i think his name is yeah. who's the this is um, the embattled uh sort of right hand man to easy e who allegedly bilked him out of many him yeah and all of NBA so their manager yeah. um who turns out to be corrupt but this is in the early stages when he's trying to get them off the ground and he invites a bunch of of record label people to their show and they're performing not F the Police but another song that's equally profane and um, you can see all of these old white record label guys are just floored like they're shocked by all they're of leaving. the obscenities yeah. and they leave yeah. and it just sort of I mean I didn't expect they'd like that music but it, it makes you realize oh I've you know because I've only I've been around my entire life hip-hop has been the prevailing genre right. in popular music it's weird to think of a time when people would be so shocked yeah. that yeah, well, people would talk so openly pop. about sex and music and <laughs> right violence. it didn't uh, jazz with their worldview yeah. so yeah. i just saw it as uh, unnecessarily vulgar but that's what's interesting about your perspective emma which is that a lot of time when like when you go see a biopic you know how like most people know how it ends like they know that you know yeah, i had NBA no idea that easy a was easy, gonna easy, easy e. sorry easy e <laughs> 
I hope I didn't say that before. I also I thought Suge Knight was a woman. Um, Are you kidding me? Yeah, I swear. I'm a new, yeah. I, and I know a lot of rap music. Like I'm not, you know, I, I know. listen to a lot of rap music. I just don't know I the know mythologies around. Mythologies. These are real stuff. people. <laughs> I mean, the the narratives around okay. like the histories of. Right. And okay, so what, maybe I didn't know Suge Knight was a real person. A mythical woman. The mythical woman, Suge Knight. Okay, but Emma, it also came out that you don't really know, have a sense for who, which celebrities are alive or dead. Uh, and we decided... We I thought, can believe that. We thought maybe we should gamify this. And and so I've got a list of five, uh, five celebrities, and you're going to tell me if they're with us or, unfortunately, no longer among the living. Here we go. So your first celebrity, Christopher Lloyd. Dead. He is alive. Why did you think think that? Yeah. Well, I'm also bad with names, and I thought maybe for a second he's the guy at Superman, the one who was paralyzed. I think that is a different person. Okay, that's fine. Christopher Lloyd is Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Oh, he is still around. That's nice to know that he's alive. (laughs) No, that feels good, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Jim Belushi. I know he's dead. Okay, so that's tough because he's super alive. What? That's, He's alive. That's tough because that's his brother. That was kind of a trick <laughs> oh question. Oh my god! He's also a famous oh, actor. Oh, is he according to Jim? Part of the trend where there's obese men with hot wives on sitcoms. I think so. You know, I think you're right. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. According to Jim. All right. So his brother's dead. All right. Yes, that's right. His brother John Belushi okay. is dead. He's the SNLer. Yeah. Jim I Belushi. See. But your confidence was very funny. <laughs> all right. Next. Uh, this is a great game. Okay. Keep right. going. Shirley Temple. Dead. That's correct. She is dead. But her drink will live forever. That's true enough. True enough. Delish. Um, Robert Redford. Alive. Not looking too good. Alive and looking real good. I mean, that was a bit oh. of editorializing at yeah. the end. Wow. But Ridiculous. you are correct Robert about Redford, the alive part. Robert Redford's looking great, as okay. he always will. Uh, but <laughs> you're you correct. You are on a streak. Uh, your last Two one. Two is not a streak. Your okay. La- <laughs> uh, your last one. Mel Brooks. I actually know things about him and like sure. him. Is, is one of them, whether he's alive or dead? Current he humanity. is dead. So that's real tough. <laughs> I mean, the thing about this conversation is that you said, he's, I know things. He's <laughs> alive? Yeah, he this is alive. I mean, I know his work. <laughs> uh, well, Emma got two out of five right. Uh, which bad. isn't bad. You know, respectable-ish. But I think, but I feel like we should deduct points for the ones that she was very confident in and that she was wrong okay, for. Okay, partial, so, partial points, partial points. Know, partial deductions. Well, Straight Outta Compton, featuring the late Eazy-E, the live uh, Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, MC Ren, and DJ Yella, out in theaters right now. Check it out. Feminism is, of course, a big and complicated topic. Recently on our site, writer Carly Lewis wrote a piece about reigning feminist celebrity laureates. Uh, your Lena Dunham's, your Taylor Swift's, your Tina Fey's, and how they pick and choose their feminist causes. So, for example, with Dunham is that she champions uh, Planned Parenthood but has a bit of a distaste for decriminalizing sex work. Amy Schumer is good on body positivity and highlighting sexual assault, but she's been accused of being racist. And then there was that Nicki Minaj and Taylor Swift Twitter battle when uh, Minaj decried the MTV Video Awards as only ever rewarding female artists with a particular look, which she meant was like thin white women. And Taylor Swift, though not being called out by name, entered in the ring to take offense, stating it was unlike Minaj to, quote, pit women against each other. So uh, Lewis calls that not really feminism, but lobbying, lobbying for what matters to you. 
Some other people call it white feminism. With us today, we have Hannah Shafi, a journalist who has written for Huffington Post and this magazine, including recently writing a cover story for this about white feminism. Welcome, Hannah. Hello. (laughs) So why don't we start with white feminism? What does that mean to you? Uh, Well, white feminism is basically a, a type of feminism that doesn't think about intersections. It doesn't think about the intersections of identity. And it's kind of, in a, in a way, gender obsessed and doesn't believe that anything else is sort of impacting the way somebody experiences their gender. So class and race um, and marginalized gender identities impact the way that you experience your gender. But in white feminism, it's kind of this idea that, oh, you know, we're all women, we're all sisters, we're in this together without realizing that like some women are only there for other women and then other women are pushed to the margins and their issues are just forgotten about or silenced. Right. So in in the piece that you wrote, this cover story, um, you talk a bit about like the white savior complex. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So there's this idea, there's a lot of white women who kind of want to save women from like, let's say Saudi Arabia or like anywhere in the Middle East. Um, And this idea that they need to teach those women about liberation. But those women are pretty aware of what liberation is and the way they deal, they don't really need the help of the West to deal with the problems within their own countries because they have their own list of priorities. So for example, people love to talk about how we need to free women in Afghanistan from the burqa, but women in Afghanistan have a lot of problems to deal with. Like mainly foreign intervention and bombs being dropped on their homes. So they're not thinking as much about what they're wearing. And while it's important to them, it's just kind of strange the way Western white feminism focuses everything around this sort of cosmetic component of feminism and doesn't seem to think about the idea that being free from foreign military intervention is also a huge part of feminist liberation for women who are living in those parts of the world. So that sort of savior complex is just, is very patronizing for women of color, for brown women and Muslim women overseas to kind of have someone saying, oh, I'm here to save you. And it's like, well, no, I can save myself and other women from my community, we're saving each other, so. I have a question for you on the topic of the white savior complex, Mm -hmm. because I've seen that when it comes to issues of of women overseas. Mm -hmm. But I also kind of notice it here, and maybe I'm wrong and exaggerating, but for example, a few years ago when Miley Cyrus was twerking on stage and people accused her of cultural appropriation, I noticed that a lot of the think pieces on that issue were by white feminists. And it was sort of like Mm -hmm. uh, white feminists talking about how the black women on stage with Miley were being objectified. Mm -hmm. And that sort of made me uncomfortable because I was like, is it really your place to call out? Yeah, I think in a sense, it's kind of the idea of like stay in your lane. And especially with the whole Molly Cyrus thing, I kind of pushed myself to only read critiques that were actually written by black women, because if it was about the topic of black culture and black bodies, it's kind of weird reading about it from a white lens, because where does it start crossing the line to like the savior complex, right? So I think in those cases, it's just better to listen to the voices from the community that's actually experiencing that issue. What do you make of um, the piece that we were just talking about on our website 
that sort of delves into the issue of celebrities and celebrities like Tina Fey and Lena Dunham who are vocal on these issues. Do you think that we sometimes give celebrities too much importance when it comes to feminist issues or are they sort of who we look to now as feminist icons? I think it's troubling that we look to some celebrities so much as feminist icons because a lot of celebrities like Lena Dunham and Taylor Swift and Tina Fey, they kind of exist within a vacuum and they live in a bubble of their own privilege. And it's weird that we look to them for like feminist guidance when they are rich, wealthy white women and they're not facing a lot of the problems that are actually hurting marginalized women. So do you think that these critiques of celebrity feminism are actually kind of unfair or at least misguided? I think in in some cases, I think they're fair. I mean, for example, Lena Dunham has said and done very problematic things, but she's kind of very much hailed as the voice of the generation. And I think it's almost, it in a way, it's sort of people's fault for, they should never have built her up to be that kind of person. And I think the problem was people get shocked when she does something terrible and it's like, but why did you hold her up as this great feminist icon to begin with when she hasn't really done that much like major activist work? I think the thing that um, that I have questions about is the idea of whether or not celebrities as a result of their platform, uh, there's there's the expectation of a perfect feminism, this mm-hmm. this, you know, plato- this strange platonic ideal that mm-hmm. probably I mean, I don't know if it exists, this like 100 percent under, you know, clear mm-hmm. perfection. And uh, and and that's the the criticism that Carly Lewis made in McLean's the idea that these are not you know true feminists these are single issue lobbyists but I wonder uh, I mean I think a lot of people subscribe to the idea that if these are people bringing uh, shining a light on certain issues isn't that better mm-hmm. than none or fewer than this mm-hmm. I mean is that do you I mean I kind of want to stray away from the idea that oh at least they're doing some good work because I think that we have to hold people to higher standards if we want feminism to evolve to a place where it's more intersectional and it's safer for people of marginalized identities. That being said, we do have to accept that even the celebrities and the people that we love, even if they're really cool in some ways, they might be problematic in other ways. I like a lot of celebrities who are great in some ways, but in other ways just say things that they really shouldn't say. I think we're also in in kind of a tricky time because it's unprecedented that we have so many uh, female comedians who are vocal feminists like Tina Fey, Mm -hmm. Amy Poehler, and Amy Schumer who get so many things right. And I think that's why we hold them to a higher standard so that if they get something wrong, they're sort of like the new public intellectuals Right, as, and as we think that they reflect comedians. us because we choose them yeah. as being heroes of ours, and then when they do something wrong, people like. Re- but you I just think have that's part to. Of it. You have to just take everything with a grain of salt. I think. I mean, um, for example, I love Tina Fey's comedy, but I also know that there are a lot of women of color who have really valid issues with her. You can like the person, but you also have to be willing to admit when they're wrong, and yeah. that doesn't mean that you have to start hating them. You know, there are celebrities that I like, but I can admit when they do something that's really problematic. I mean, I grew up loving No Doubt. I love their music. Do I think it's cool that Gwen Stefani, like, wore a bindi all through the 90s? No, it wasn't cool. Like, it it was super appropriative, (laughs) and I'm not going to pretend like it wasn't just because I like the music. So the problem is, it's okay if you like a problematic celebrity, but the moment you start defending every crap thing that they do... 
that's the problem. And people are so willing to come to Lena Dunham and Taylor Swift's rescue and say, but they're doing something at least. They're doing something. Because they see it as a reflection of themselves. Exactly. Most people can't admit that Cary Grant was gay. If you like Taylor Swift and you want to sing to Bad Blood, go for it. But if I go up to you and I say, hey, what Taylor Swift did to Nikki was patronizing and the epitome of white feminism... Don't be like, but no, she didn't mean it. She, it doesn't matter. She wrote, shake it off. Like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. just admit it. One yeah. of my favorite Louis C.K. jokes is uh, when he says, if somebody comes to you and says that you're a jerk, you can't go, no, I'm not. <laughs> you have to go, oh, crap. Am I? Yeah. Ow. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Well, thanks, Ada, for joining yeah, us. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. There are so many ways to laugh online. LOL, Rofla, LMAO, LMFAO, ha ha, ha ha ha, he he, he, ha, laughing emoji. But <laughs> which- also the way we're laughing now. But which expression of laughter, be it the ubiquitous LOL or the lesser known Rofla, is the most popular? If you guessed LOL like we did, you guessed wrong. According to Facebook, which released a new study on the subject this week, the most common laugh on the social network is ha-ha, followed by various emoji signs and hee-hee. Age, gender, and geographic location, says Facebook, play a role in laughter type and length. Young people and women prefer emojis, whereas men prefer longer hee-hees. People in Chicago and New York prefer emojis, while Seattle and San Francisco prefer ha-has. Facebook also found that across all age groups from 13 to 70, the most common laughs are still ha ha, ha ha ha, ha 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 ha, and then he he. Oh <laughs> so what does this mean and why does it matter? Adrian? First, thanks for the best intro we've ever we've had. Ever here. had. Oh my God. We've heard a lot of laughs. We've had a lot of laughs today. But this this is the best one. Uh, I want to first start by mentioning how, frankly, mildly terrifying it is that Facebook has all of this data, that it casually mentioned that it was just poking around through our private messages, checking for the way we laugh, and everyone's like, oh, that's really, that's really thoughtful. Thank you, Facebook. <laughs> so, you know, I just want to levy my privacy complaints. But on the topic of LOL and haha. Um, I want to I want to register here for the record that I have long been a haha user. I think LOL uh, is a is a is a wild person's way to laugh. I think people don't laugh that way, um, which is to say also that people don't laugh haha either. Uh, and that's what was so funny about when you said he he also earlier <laughs> in this intro. Um, I think, frankly, it is an evolution of the way the internet has affected our language. Certainly, the inter there's no question that that is the case. Um, but I think this is a very interesting one, uh, reflecting the way that young people uh, continue to put barriers in between the way that they speak and the things that they mean. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I think LOL started, uh, you know, in the AOL age when people were still trying to figure out what it meant to IM people and, you know, MSN messenger people. And it was great because you had a computer in the way. You didn't have to actually see the person in front of you. You could say whatever you want. You could, you know, laugh however crazily you wanted to. Uh, so you could say LOL, which is a ridiculous thing to say because there was a computer in the way. I think what happened next was that you had haha, which is a more, which is a more uh, subtle way of doing it. But... Fair enough. Sort of like how when when people say that a dog says woof. A dog sure. doesn't say woof, but that's like the... Yeah, it's true. 
Um, and I just feel like that's yet another barrier in the way of uh, being vulnerable. Young people say, saying haha because I think it's a sneakier way to laugh. It's not as as big and awkward, frankly, as LOL is, which often has to be in capital letters. I think that's a big uh, effusive thing. Um, and the Facebook study also showed that emoji are the next frontier. Uh, and I think that, that that works too. I think the fact that you went from people putting a computer in the way to the fact that now all of your personal information is right there with you. So it's actually quite vulnerable. You're deeply connected to your account and that kind of thing. So if people are using emojis, you're putting in a, yet another barrier because you're letting these cats or these like rabbits make the emotions for you. So we're actually adding barriers of emotion in between, um, in between the things that we say on the, on the internet. Uh, from what we actually mean to yeah, to that, I think. I partially agree with you. I think that LOL, or LOL, however you want to say it, IRL, mm -hmm. started mm -hmm. out uh, at the dawn of, of the internet as a, a way to actually express that you were laughing. Right. And that's what you would say before people started to say ha-ha a lot online. But I think that it sort of evolved. And the reason why ha-ha has taken over is because ha-ha literally means laughter. You, It's not usually a code for anything else. And I think that at least in my experience on the internet, especially when I was a teenager on MSN Messenger, lol was sort of like what you would say um, in a conversation to convey that you don't want to be vulnerable. It's sort right, of like exactly. a teenage boy flirting with a girl he doesn't want to be he doesn't want to show that he's he's necessarily serious so to sort of break the ice he'll just write lol yeah. like school was good today lol and that's sort of his sign that he's joking around that this isn't a serious conversation and i found that the more i used i used um instant messaging throughout my adolescence into early adulthood lol sort of evolved and changed meanings from i am laughing to I'm just going to say this because I don't know what else to say. And right. I think that's why maybe haha ha has overtaken lol because it's more of a universal signifier yeah. of there laughter. Is a, there is a seriousness and a vulnerability to saying what you actually mean. L laughter undercuts it. But when you're, you know, it is so much a spontaneous thing, laughter, when you're writing it, I think that that's such a, there is a, a mawkish fakeness to it. And that is that is what is evolving, the, the barriers I think we put between it. I think it also began as a way to convey tone. So... Emma, you're talking about perhaps two teenagers MSNing each other. God, I sound so old. Um, <laughs> that, you know, instead of saying school was good today or school was good today, LOL, it's just like I'm in a, a jovial mood and I want to be able to because part of what, one of the things that uh, the large critique about being able to convey uh, to communicate over text messaging or emails is that tone is so hard to read. Tone is so hard to read, right? We've always heard this from the very beginning. So I think it was a way to like express a sense of tone. I've always been a haha -ha person myself. Yeah. But I think that um, uh, I think it's because those things, those LOLs, haha -ha emojis, they 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 personally um, are coded to me. So I always thought of LOL as somebody who is kind of like basic. It, no, no, as as somebody who kind of was a little bit like mm, puffy on what they were getting at like just kind of like <laughs> you know what i'm saying like I, i'm not doing a very good job lol. <laughs> like lol and like and you're just like yeah it, like a barrier probably is what you're talking about haha -ha, you have to commit a little more to haha -ha because lol is a little ubiquitous you can put it anywhere emojis though are too showy it's oh. just like i don't care for your cartoon that's rude because okay. i'm like use them all you the i time like i also, just mean I generally seem within... to have a problem with it. wait hold on i'm gonna throw something else into the mix i'm an analog emoji meaning it's like the colon 
parentheses. Oh, <laughs> Do you also li- only listen to vinyl? Do you write in a hieroglyph? Going to die. Look, I'm just saying that when I started to text or email, emojis did not exist. So right. as, as you know, you know, the three of us, we dis- we discuss mm-hmm. over text sometimes. I'm I'm fine with emojis. I was going to say on Facebook, on our Facebook totally. chain, we use emoji we all are, the time. We the are, stickers, Facebook it's, stickers. And it's, that's fun. I don't mean personally. I'm talking about generally how I code the way different people describe laughter in text kind of say to me something about the person that they are Mm -hmm. the thing is i don't really use haha very much or lol i've always used lols that's so true. I put a Z at the end, and Another I don't know that's true. I can back that what up. What that means, but that. I've always thought of it. Maybe it's kind of like lol to me has been a bit basic. It's like I think lols with a Z with a Z is, is kind of like who, I'm a cool girl. Lols. Well, it's kind of like I'm self aware that lol is is yeah, not it is. Cool. I feel yeah, exactly. self conscious about just yeah. going with a lol. I also I like base it on who I'm talking to. If it's yep. like one of my like high school girls, I'll always use like a lols or a lol. But then if it's like somebody who's kind of hipster, maybe a journalist, I would say, ha ha. Hmm. Right. Interesting. Well, certainly, yeah, coding. I mean, it's all coding, right? Yeah. It's like how also how you want to present yourself to whomever it is you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but that's, that's the thing too. Also, internet language is such a like flits around so quickly that it was it was a matter. It was certainly a matter of time that lol became boring and that you wanted to undercut it with a layer of irony, which is what I was talking about still, the the barriers between separating yourself from being vulnerable. Lol became, it used to be, I think, a way to just say you're laughing and like whatever the way that we use haha now but that has become so so thin a shield that now there's another layer of irony between it when you say lols lolz but we can all agree that rafla is lame good god certainly well that's it for this week we're on our summer schedule still so our next episode will come on august 28th check it out as always at mcclains.ca subscribe on itunes stitcher and beyond pod it would be so great and helpful to us if you wrote us a review or a comment on itunes you can also tell us your thoughts about what we talked about today with a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on the Hill or our books podcast, The Bibliopod. You also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work at McLean's Voices. Those podcasts are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J, and me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>